everyone. Welcome back to the FN Politics stream. This is Danielle Gaines, and we've been on a bit of a hiatus, but we're back today with a bit of a special episode that we wanted to share. Uh, Late last month, uh, at the end of July, Congressman John Delaney was expected to announce his future political ambition. Many people thought that might be a choice to run for governor. Instead, as we all know by now, he is choosing to not seek re-election to his current seat and instead prepare a run for the presidency in 2020. I was able to sit down and do an interview over the phone with Congressman Delaney earlier this week, and we've got that to share with you today. We'll be back recording weekly episodes in the near future. Until then, here's my conversation with Congressman Delaney. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Congressman. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, Well, thanks for taking a few minutes out. I I wanted to talk to you about your recent announcement. Yep. Um, You know, when did you first uh, start thinking about running for for president? You know, I started thinking about it, um, you know, obviously in the last several months. I mean, I suppose to some extent it started after Secretary Clinton lost. But what really started making me focus more on it is is what I perceive to be the uh, very bad job President Trump is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, the last three or four months I really started to focus on it. Okay. And um, you were listed on that, um, you know, the leadership list in Forbes. Did that influence your opinion in any way? Uh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> um, what has been the response that you've received so far? You know, very positive. I think the things that um, that I want to talk about on this campaign, which is the future, and trying to figure out how we change the destructive partisan ways in Washington, I think, are what people want to talk about. And how do you think you can do that? I mean, that's obviously something that many, many members of Congress yeah. talk about. Well, I think it's it, yeah, sure. It, it, but I think it's kind of related to what my focus is, as I said, which is on the future. Because I think if you focus on what's actually happening in the world and think about how this is going to play out in the future. So, in other words, if you if you take a step back and you look at technology, automation, global interconnections, and you think about the effect they're having on the world, on the economy, on jobs on resources, uh, on our demographics, all these various, you know, very significant changes that are occurring in the world and are likely to play out a certain way. If you can get people focused on that, I think you have an opportunity to change the dialogue in Washington, and, and it gives you an opportunity to break from these entrenched partisan debates that exist right now. So, So part of it is by changing the conversation towards something that I think is substantively more important to talk about. I think you also create a dynamic where you can have a more constructive conversation. How do you change to a more substantive discussion? I mean, um, you know, the last presidential election, even the debates uh, did not get into no, it the didn't do that. very often. I agree. Look at it, it. Some people wanted to have a substantive conversation, and it turned into a conversation about the size of people's hands, right? So um, I agree that it's really hard. But again, I just think you need to talk about uh, what's important. And, and, and oddly, what's important is, is actually a different thing to talk about. So, for example, if I were in a debate, I'd spend a bunch of my time talking about how technology and globalization are changing the world and changing work and jobs. And that's a very different conversation. It doesn't immediately lend itself to these tired arguments we've had about the size of government, too big or too small. 
right? It actually gets into, okay, if this is really happening, what would a better future look like? And we'd say, okay, well, a better future would have a country that's more entrepreneurial, and we'd have a situation where people feel a little more secure and are better equipped to engage in a world that's changing faster. And then you'd say, okay, if we can agree on that, let's talk about the real things that make that happen. And I think when it, when people start reverting to a bunch of talking points, I think the American people will say, you know, that's not the answer to these questions. When um, your campaign launched, obviously your logo has a big road running through it. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, is that, I, I assume that's about infrastructure, and I'm wondering. It is, you and know, you know, I think it's about a path to a better future. Okay. Is, have your plans for infrastructure um, reform changed, or are you still pursuing no. the... No, I think my approach is still the best one. Can you explain it for me again? Sure, which is to, to basically launch a trillion-dollar infrastructure program paid for through international tax reform. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's going to be a popular idea? I mean, th- that seems like something that a business might fight back on. Yeah, I, I think it's... A, I mean, we've proven that it's a not only a popular idea, but a bipartisan idea. What do you think has kept it from moving forward? And I think partisanship. You know, I think what my what my approach fundamentally involves is um, trying to achieve two different things, right? Trying to achieve more infrastructure and a fix to the international tax system. And you know, the the, the party leadership, the Republican Party leadership, right now wants to use international tax reform to lower tax rates. So they want to take the revenues that are generated from international tax reform and use it to cut taxes, mostly for the wealthy. And, you know, I think they need to realize that, A, that's not what the American people want, and B, there's just not going to be a bipartisan deal there. Mm-hmm. And I think some of my colleagues uh, on my side of the aisle want to, to build infrastructure through unpaid-for spending. And I think they need to realize that, A, that's not a popular idea, and B, that doesn't have an opportunity for bipartisan support. So... You know, I think it involves exactly what I'm talking about, which is how do we find the, the common ground where something big can get done. I mean, we've had over 40 Democrats and 40 Republicans supporting this approach. That means it would pass if it actually got to the floor of the Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about uh, partisanship or bipartisanship, uh, where do you think that, that things are going to go um, on health care reform? Do you think that uh, – Well, now that, the, you know – uh, assuming they don't try to repeal it again, mm-hmm. I think where things should go is towards doing things to to fix slash improve the Affordable Care Act. And what idea, do you have ideas for how to do I that? Do, I do. I have lots of ideas. I think it, when you really focus on the Affordable Care Act, um, you realize that its problems are centered on the exchanges. Right. The other aspects of the Affordable Care Act, I think, have been very successful, but the exchanges have not worked as well as they could have. And the exchanges, you know, roughly five or six or maybe seven percent, we don't know exactly, of the population are in these exchanges. So that's a lot of human beings, but it's not a large percentage of health care in this country. Most health care in this country is delivered either through Medicaid, Medicare, or through company-sponsored health insurance programs. And the exchanges, which are five, six, or seven percent of the population, aren't working. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. And the fixes there are pretty obvious because the reason they're not working is, by and large, the pools themselves um, are not healthy enough 
and the provider's ability to charge for the risk um, is not, you know, kind of embedded in the way the exchanges were structured. So what should happen is a combination of two things. One, we should look at these reinsurance programs where the exchanges can offload some riskier, the exposure to some riskier patients to a kind of a giant reinsurance program where the risk could be spread better. And two, we should look at ideas like allowing people over 55 to join Medicaid, because what the Affordable Care Act does is limit what insurance companies can charge people who are over 55. While I support that directionally, it does make the economics of these exchanges not work well. So I'd like to figure out a way to, to, to get those same people in a plan where their risk can be spread among a larger pool. So um, my family's originally from the Midwest um, rural areas where people um, have seen their insurance um, rates go up to a great extent. Yes. You know, of, of course, according to various, you know, nonpartisan yeah, analyses, no, totally. more people are yeah. covered, but, you know, at what cost? And so um, how do you – how do you think you can have a conversation with people who are so upset because so much of their income is going towards health care right. and, and try to, to talk about those deep-in-the-weeds things? Well, I mean, you know, what they want us to do is fix the problem. Mm-hmm. So the way I'll talk to those people is say, I have a plan to fix the problem. And if they have to me what the plan is, you know, I would say that what we should do is allow people over 55 to go into Medicare. And if you explain to them what's going on, they they actually get it. It's not that in the weeds, right? So the way health insurance works is, you know, you normally charge for the risk generally, not for the risk specifically. So people who are over 55, the Affordable Care Act caps what they can be charged at three times the cheapest policy that the insurance company offers. The problem is those people typically have health care costs six times what young, healthy people's health care costs are. So if you can only charge them three times, then you have to increase the prices on everyone else to make up for it. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if you're young and healthy and the penalty is low, you leave the exchanges because the, the, the premiums are too high. So the people who are left in the exchanges are burdening too much of the, the costs of the risk in the pool. Mm-hmm. And so the thing you have to do is you have to get the people over 55 out of those exchanges. Mm-hmm. And then they'll work. Mm-hmm. Um, I and saw, I think most people understand what I just said. Mm-hmm. I saw on your website, um, talking about the Midwest, that you're planning on, on going to Iowa this yep. summer? Yep, for the fair. Uh, what are you planning? So you're planning to go to the fair? Yeah. I will have and meetings with people while we're there. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, how much time do you think, how are you going to balance, you know, your current duties, um, you know, trying to increase your name recognition nationwide? Um, how do you see that working? Well, that's, that's why I elected not to run for re-election, because I felt like that was the right thing to do for my constituents, because I want to continue to be their congressman and represent them well, which is the way they've, they've I believe most people have an impression of me that I'm take my job seriously and I represent my constituents and I intend to fully do that and run through the finish line on that. But it's hard to to to, to kind of do that, run for re-election and lay the groundwork to run for president. So something had to give 
and what, in my judgment, what should give is me running for re-election for the seat. So, you know, I believe I'll be able to continue to do my job uh, as I have in the past. And the time that, that, that I would have otherwise been focused on my re-election in 2018 will start being allocated towards this presidential run. Mm -hmm. And after you um, leave office, uh, at least temporarily in January, um, what what do you think you'll be doing? Will you? Well, that's then full-time campaigning because mm -hmm. the Iowa caucus is one year away. Okay. And um, in the in the Congress, you had um, a bit of a reputation um, for voting in a bipartisan way, having more of a moderate stance on things. Um, but I saw in your press release, you know, um, you highlighted some of your progressive policies. Um, do you consider yourself a moderate or a progressive or somewhere in between? So this is how I think about it. I think I have progressive instincts. In other words, the things I'm pursuing and working towards are very progressive because they're about the future, and being progressive is in many ways about the future. But I obviously seek bipartisan solutions, and I, and I clearly understand and embrace the power of the private market and think market forces in the private economy should be a partner with government in solving these problems. And that's where I'm probably different. Right? I don't view the private economy as the enemy. I view it as a partner with government to help make the lives of people better. Mm -hmm. um, what, you know, in your last year in Congress, what things do you want to get accomplished before you leave well, um, the House? Well, you know, once they're, they're – listen, the administration is going to try to do tax reform, which I think will fail. And then I think there will be a huge opportunity for my infrastructure proposal with uh, international tax reform. So I really want to focus on that. Um, you posted a video about gerrymandering on your Facebook page in the not-too-distant past. Um, do you think there's uh, that it's time for Congress to try to act on that, or how do, what do you think is the solution? Clearly, I think it's one of the biggest problems in politics right now. And I think even Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, said very clearly that he believes under the Elections Clause of the Constitution that the Congress can actually put rules of the road in place around things like how, you, how congressional districts are drawn, so we should be doing that. Um, what what are going to be the the key points in your in your presidential campaign? Focusing on the future and uh, taking a different approach to actually working um, with the other side to get things done. Mm -hmm. um, what do you hope happens to your district once you leave? Well, I I hope it um, is represented by a member of Congress who who really focuses on my constituents, because I think my constituents, you know, I've grown to know so many of them and really admire and really um, have tremendous respect for them, and I want them to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll, do you see yourself endorsing anyone? I, I think it's, I, you know, at this point it seems like there's a bunch of good candidates running, so, you know, I think this is something where the, you know, there should be an opportunity for the people to really focus on the candidates without me getting involved. Um, what do you think you've learned as a House member that prepares you for the presidency? Well, I've learned how government works. I think we're seeing with President Trump that having an inexperienced president is not the right answer. Uh, you know, so I've learned how – I mean, I, I came to the, to the office with tremendous experience in the private sector, understanding the private economy. I had tremendous experience in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector. And now, over the last three terms in Congress, I've really learned how the government works. 
um, not from kind of a textbook perspective, because I always knew that, but from the real inner workings of how the Congress operates and how it should interact with the legislative branch. And, you know, I have very strong view. I mean, with the executive branch, I have very strong views as to how the executive branch could have a better relationship with Congress. Have you had any chance to, to speak with President Trump one on one? I have not. If you as best did, I can tell, he's made no outreach to any Democrats in the Congress. Okay. If you did, uh, you know, what, was, what message would you send? You know, uh, uh, ill-advised, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If you had the chance to sit down with him, what would you say? I'd say you ran on infrastructure, yet you have no plans for it. Why don't you put all this other stuff you're doing aside that obviously the American people don't like? It's clear the American people don't want the Affordable Care Act repealed. So stop trying to repeal it. And why don't you focus on something, things that you told people that you were going to do that people actually support, like infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, a lot of people thought that you might be running for governor this mm-hmm. um, coming election season, um, and, and that you are obviously not doing. Um, what do you think about that race, and what are your hopes for you know Maryland's gubernatorial? So leadership? I think a Democrat will be governor of Maryland after 2018. Um, In terms of my decision, it didn't feel like the work for me to do, right? The things that I'm passionate about and where I think I can make a difference are at the federal level, and that's why I decided not to run. But I do think a Democrat will be governor of Maryland in 2018 Mm -hmm. Um, or 2019, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, do you have any other uh, thoughts that you want to share? No, I really – but I I will close by saying – what a great uh, privilege it's been to work with uh, News Post over all these years, uh, and I look forward to continuing it. Obviously, I'm not going anywhere, neither are you guys, but uh, it's been a great uh, been a great run. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you.